The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I am eager to return to Joseph as we close out the book of Genesis, but it's so beautiful and wonderful being outside, and I thought after some prayer that John 3 would be a great passage to rejoice in as we remain outdoor this final Sunday. So hopefully you're in John 3. Our brother read where the text culminates. We're going to get there, Lord willing, but we're going to focus on the interchange that leads up to it. And that's the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, beginning in John 3, verse 1. If you have the bulletin, you see the way I outlined the passage. Even if you didn't, here are the four points. I think it's pretty simple. The necessity of rebirth, number one. The miracle of rebirth, number two. The mystery of rebirth, number three. And the power of rebirth, number four. So today's sermon is titled, Rebirth. Look with me in God's word in John 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So number one this morning, the necessity of rebirth. Jesus already told us in verse 3, without rebirth, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He'll say in verse 5, without rebirth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God, which would lead us to ask, what is the kingdom of God? It sounds very important, and Jesus wants us to know how to get in it. It is, admittedly, a big theme in the Bible, but sometimes people make it more complex than they need to. By verse 15, John will record Jesus interchanging the phrase kingdom of God with eternal life. So the kingdom of God is interchangeable with eternal life. The kingdom of God, I think, is helpfully described this way. The kingdom of God is life with God's person, life with God's fulfilled promises, and the pleasure of being in God's presence. This is what it means to be in God's kingdom. It's to have eternal life. Jesus is telling us without... Here's one of the challenges about being a preacher in the year 2022. It means we have 2,000 years of layered examples, not all of which are particularly helpful. Many of us, when we picture Jesus, we picture drawings that we've seen of an Anglo-Saxon rock star that may or may not look very much like Jesus. And when we hear the word born again, we may have many cultural connotations that aren't really what Jesus is talking about. For example, sometimes when people hear the word born again, they think, oh, that's probably for people who have had real problems in life and they just need a fresh start. That is not what Jesus is talking about. Other people, when they hear the word born again, they think, oh, that's probably for like that group that's very emotional. Not what Jesus is talking about. Other people, when they hear the word born again, they think of an odd, conservatively voting block of people. Also not what Jesus is talking about. When Jesus talks about being born again, he is not talking about a type of person. He is talking about what is needed for every person. Would you look again in verse 3? Jesus said, unless one is born again. That word one is a collective singular. Anyone, anyone who would know God's presence and be with God's person must be born again. In fact, if you look down to verse 7, 
Jesus is talking to Nicodemus directly, and he says, you must be born again. But if you're a Greek reader, that word you is plural. Jesus isn't just talking to Nicodemus. He's talking to everyone. Everyone needs to be born again. Being born again is not a type of person. It is a need for every person. And I want you to notice that it's a need for every person that is bound up in who you recognize Jesus to be. Now, Nicodemus, look in verse 2. Look at how he describes Jesus. He calls Jesus a rabbi, a teacher. He calls him then a teacher again. And notice he says he's a teacher from God. And he says that he can do signs indicating that God must be with him. Now, all of Nicodemus's descriptions are polite. And they're all inadequate. Though they're polite, they're not even close to sufficient to describe who he's talking to. You see, Jesus is not merely a rabbi or a teacher. He's the word become flesh. Jesus does not merely represent God. He's the only way God can be known. John 1, 18 says, the word, no one can see God at any time, but the Son, the eternal word, has made him known. John 1, 14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and through it we have beheld the glory of God the Father. Furthermore, Jesus is not merely from God, like, like Elijah would be or like Elisha would be. Jesus is God, the eternal Son. John 1, 1 begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and apart from Him was not anything made that was made. See, Nicodemus is polite, but he's woefully inadequate in his recognition of who Jesus is. Do you know what that means for you and I? If someone thinks Jesus was a good historical person, a nice teacher, someone who has some interesting ethics that may still be helpful to us, but they don't fully grasp that he is God, the eternal son, they need to be born again. Rebirth is required because we fail to rightly recognize who Jesus is. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And without that rebirth, you will never see or enter a relationship with God. Now, do you understand how liberating and earth-shattering Jesus' promise is? Many people who grow up in church in America fall under the conception that the main message is that they need to just be a little bit better. If I could just be a little bit better of a person, if I could do a little better, if I could just try harder, did you know that that is not what Jesus taught? Jesus did not come to make bad people better He came to make dead people alive. Jesus came to give people life who otherwise had none. God has allowed me to have a couple very close relationships with atheist friends of mine. And and over the decades, we've had very congenial interchange over email or conversation about what we're reading and what we're talking about. And one of my friends agreed to read through the book of Romans with me. And he had never read the Bible before. And he was an atheist going in and very concerned about all the things he was going to read. But at some point, something started to click for him when I said it to him this way. I said, look, the Bible's not a book about good people. The Bible's a book about bad people who receive grace from a good God. This is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You don't need a vitamin supplement. You need rebirth. You don't need to try a little harder. You need to be remade. 
An entirely new self is needed. Now that's actually really good news. Because if you're here this morning and you've been thinking, man, I don't know if I could measure up. I have good news for you. None of us measure up. But Christ will give rebirth. You'll have a new self that eternally measures up. Or conversely, if you're here this morning and you generally think that you're okay, you think, well, I'm relatively good. I'm comparatively a good person to those who are around me. Well, then you're actually approaching Jesus the way Nicodemus is. So now would you look up in verse 1? I know we're going in reverse order, but let's notice here who Nicodemus is so that we can tell why people like that need to hear this message clearly. Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. Verse 1 gives us three descriptions of this person. Notice he's a man of the Pharisees. He is named Nicodemus, and he's a ruler of the Jews. Let me explain each one of these. First, he's a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most important and influential group in Jesus' day and time. We don't understand this, and here's why. In America, if you want power and influence, the most important thing you can do is try to not be publicly religious. It's very important. In America, if you want public power and influence, you need to be very middle of the road. That's, that's the key. You can't have any strong convictions. If you do, you'll lose power and influence. But in the first century, it was the precise opposite. Being highly religious also made you highly important. Those who were very convictional also had great influence. So verse 1 is telling us Nicodemus was an important man. But notice it's also telling us that he was named. Many people in the Bible aren't named. In, the, in fact, the Gospels often uh, put two people next to one another to show us contrast. In John 4, we'll meet an unnamed Samaritan woman, a woman with very little influence, very little power from a social and ethnic group that's undesired who doesn't even have a recorded name. But of course, she'll respond quite differently than Nicodemus will hear. Nicodemus is named for this reason, because the readers would know who he is. It'd be like saying today that Roy Cooper had a conversation with Jesus, and here's what he walked away with. We would all know him. We would all be as, oh, yes, I know him. That's what happened. See, the first century readers would know Nicodemus. They could walk to him and say, what happened between you and Jesus? And it was all a matter of public record. But there's a third thing we read about him. He's a ruler of the Jews. This means that he's powerful. He's important. He's known. But he's particularly powerful. The ruler of the Jews were the Sanhedrin. There were not many of them. And they were respected. So wait, are are you tracking with me? Nicodemus is important. He's known. He's powerful. He's religious. And he needs to be born again. See, there's no one who will enter the kingdom of God on their own legs. Someone else has to bring them in. They have to have a new birth. Again, I find this extremely encouraging because many of us are concerned. Do I measure up? Am I good enough? Do I have enough respect in my social circles, in my peer approval? But none of that contributes to your entrance into the kingdom of God. So number one, the necessity of rebirth. We don't need a supplement. We need a new self. We don't need slight moral improvement. We need a fundamental 
ontological overhaul. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know that that's illustrated for us in many places. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth, but in pride, he looked out at the city and said, look at what I have done. What did God have to do to bring him to a point of humility? He needed literally a change of being. (laughs) He became an animal. Think of Naaman, who was so wealthy that when he had leprosy, he thought he could buy a solution. So he tried to get Elisha to somehow coordinate some sort of healing with him. And what did God have him do? He had him humble himself by dipping in the river seven times. He needed a complete change of his trust. He had to realize he's desperate. Rebirth is desperate. Verse 3 says you must be born again. Now the Greek word is anothen. Some translations write born again. A few translations write born from above. Which one is it? The answer is both. (laughs) Sometimes in language you use a double entendre, and that's what Jesus is using here. We need a birth from above that is a rebirth. So number one, the necessity of rebirth. But now number two, the miracle of rebirth. And look with me in God's word in verses four through six. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus is asking the question, how can someone be born? Jesus actually gives two answers. I'm going to tell them to you first, and then I'll explain them. First, Jesus says the birth from the Spirit is complete cleansing. That's verse 5. I'll explain it in a second. And second, the birth from the Spirit is divinely brought birth. That's verse 6. First, complete cleansing. Look in verse 5. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? Scholars debate here. Some think maybe he's talking about physical birth, hence the whole water thing. But he isn't. That doesn't track with the metaphor. Others think maybe he's talking about baptism. Maybe saying you need to be baptized but he would have used the word baptizo. He doesn't use the word baptize. He's using the word water. So what does Jesus mean? And so many times, if we're trying to understand something in the Bible, if we know the rest of the Bible, it really, really helps. If we know the Old Testament, we understand what Jesus is referring to here. Because in Ezekiel chapter 36, God promised in verse 25 that he would sprinkle clean water and his people would be cleaned from their impurities. He then promised he'd give them a, notice, new heart. So how does the rebirth happen? What's the whole point of water in verse 5? It means that God will completely cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible tells us this many times. Ephesians 5 says that Christ gave himself for the church so that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water. Titus 3.5 was read first earlier, that we are saved not by works we have done, but on the basis of God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. I would love you to worship God today through that point. Isn't it great that God takes dirty people and makes us eternally clean? You know, you'll never appreciate complete cleansing until you know how dirty you are. Running water, we forget, is a fairly new thing. Did you know that in 1842, the first bathtub was installed? And it was installed in the city of Cincinnati. As a Michigan fan, I thought nothing good could come out of Ohio, but I guess I'll have to let that one pass. 
the first bathtub where you could be cleaned, 1842. Did you know the scientists of the day believe that you should not use soap? The argument was that a bath is only good to clear congestion and it should be as cold as possible. So the idea was you jump in and you jump out. Later in the 1800s, people started to use soap. And in the early 1900s, people started to write about this thing called germs. (laughs) See, if you don't know you're dirty, you don't appreciate how great it is to be clean. Jesus is promising in verse 5 that anyone who is reborn is washed by the Holy Spirit. Completely cleaned forever. But he says even more for us in verse 6. He says not only are we completely clean, verse 5, but our birth is from above, from the Spirit, verse 6. Verse 6, what is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. Do you see the two points he's making? Agency and result. Whatever the agent is, is the result you get. If you have human parentage, you have a human nature. If you have a spirit parentage, you have a spiritual nature. What the agent is, is what the result is. Do you know what that means? We're not the agent of our spiritual birth. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, regeneration, rebirth, is a divine activity in which we are not the actors, but the recipients. The agent is is God. But that's great news because that means the result is spiritual life that could never be lost. This is why 1 Peter 1.23 says, born again, not of corruptible seed, which could corrupt, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The agency is God. The result is God. And so the blessing is one that changes everything. I want to press today why this is such good news in our cultural moment. There are two things our culture struggles with that God promises here. The first is that we could know something about our cleanliness. And the second is that we could know whose we are. Have you noticed how much it matters to people that we know where we're from? Ancestry.com has really taken off. Because people just feel like, if I could figure out my parentage, then I would know something about myself. Isn't it great to know what your most important parentage is? You're born of the Spirit. On the other hand, many people long to know that they're clean, that they're accepted. Perhaps you've heard the phrase in our culture, hey, don't shame me, which is a way of saying, I feel ashamed. Don't make me feel more ashamed. Or you've seen people write books where they talk about guilt over their skin color or their socioeconomic status. And they attempt to assuage their guilt through apologies or atoning acts. But verse 5 says we can be permanently cleaned. If you're permanently cleaned and you know it and you know who you belong to, it gives you assurance. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near to God with full assurance of faith. How? Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says about Christians, such were some of you. We were something else, but now you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So number one is the necessity of rebirth. Number two is the miracle of rebirth. But now number three, verses seven through eight, is the mystery of rebirth. Verses seven through eight, 
are maybe my favorite. Now, let me just pause for a second. I know, I know the whole Bible is breathed out by God. So all of it is ultimately written by God. But God did not flatten people's personalities when they wrote the Bible, even though it was breathed out by him. That's why when you read books by Peter, they read differently than books by Paul. It's when you read books by Moses, they read differently than books by John. They're all breathed out by God, but God didn't flatten their individual personalities. Now, my favorite person to read in the Bible is Jesus. I mean, feels like a trump card, I guess, but he's my favorite to read because he says things that stick in my mind in a way nobody else does. Other people speak, and I get it, but I don't have to mull over it for several days. Whenever Jesus says something, it's, it's both accessible but incredible. It's both impactful but also deepening. And it's like I have to chew over anything he says longer than anybody else. His parables stick with me. Verse 7 and 8 is a great example of that. Look at the way Jesus describes the work of the Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. What an incredible image to explain how God the Spirit works. Let me, I just love this, so let me drill in on a couple parts of it. Notice in verse 7, he begins with, do not marvel. What an incredible statement. That, that means this is something challenging, but it can be comprehended. The, the cars are even saying amen at this point. Is that good? Thank you. Verse 7, do not marvel why. This is stretching your mind. It's, it's a level of mysteriousness, but it's actually comprehensible. Just like any good mystery novel rewards close attention, so the metaphor of the Spirit as wind will reward close attention. You can comprehend what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus is such an incredible speaker. He uses a pun in verse 8. It's clear to a Greek reader. The pun is that the word pneuma is the same word for spirit and for wind. Jesus sort of plays with them to make the point that they're very similar. Wind is something you hear, but you can't control. Wind is something that leaves an effect, but you can't call it when you want it. Wind can't be captured, it can't be controlled, and it can't be predicted in the same way. God the Spirit can't be captured, he can't be controlled, he can't be predicted. He seemingly comes out of nowhere, moving wherever he pleases, but is always perceivable by the effect he leaves. This is actually why I pray every Sunday morning at length, because I know, God, I cannot cause anything. Lord, unless the Spirit chooses to blow in here this morning and do the miracle only he can do, there's nothing I can coordinate. But the incredible blessing of it is that the Spirit does move and he leaves things forever the same. In fact, he leaves new people. And the new people are totally recognized as new. I just want to draw out a couple implications I think our culture needs to hear by this mystery. This tells us, number one, that we are dependent creatures. God has to do a work that we can't do. It also tells us that we're not self-actualizing. Haven't you heard people talk that way? Just like actualize yourself or bring out your inner... No, 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 no. <laughs> Unless God works, there is nothing. You know what it also means? The most important thing about our identity is not what we achieve, but what we receive. The most important thing about your identity is not what you achieve, but what you receive. 
And it finally means that the Spirit's presence will always be visible in its effect. That's why God says that the Spirit bears fruit. The Spirit shows life. In other words, you'll know who's been born again. Number four. We had number one, the necessity of rebirth. Number two, the miracle of it. It's only the Spirit. Number three, the mystery of it. But now number four, the power of it. Verse nine is the driving key question of the whole passage. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how? It's the key question, isn't it? If there's this rebirth and we need it, how? How does it happen? How do I get it? How? How can these things be? Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not yet understand these things? That's important. It lets us know the Old Testament sufficiently communicated this. But now in verses 11 and 12, Jesus wants him to know that what he's about to say, he needs to trust. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. In English, it says, truly, truly. In Greek, it says, amen, amen. I I know you all know in church, we say amen after somebody speaks as if to affirm or second or say, yeah, that's right. Jesus alone says amen at the beginning because he doesn't need a second. So he says, amen, amen. What I'm about to say is the truth, but you still won't receive it. Verse 12, if I've told you earthly things and do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I love in Hebrews 6, verse 13, God, when he made a promise to Abraham, swore by himself because there was nothing higher to swear by. When we are under oath, we say, I swear to God. Who, who could God possibly swear to? That's a higher authority. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Look, Nicodemus, look, you listening today. When Jesus speaks, it's the truth. This is very important. Because did you know that the ground of epistemology, philosophy, and knowledge is God has spoken? The way we know something's true is because God has spoken. And here's what God has spoken. And now he answers the question that Nicodemus asked. Jesus, how is this possible? What could make this possible? Here's the answer, verse 13 and 14. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, which is Jesus. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Do you know what he's referring to? He's referring to what happened in history that's recorded in the book of Numbers. And here's the cliff notes of it. In history, recorded in the book of Numbers, God's people had sinned terribly. And so God sent a punishment for their sin. And the punishment was they were bit by snakes that had venom in them. You might think, why? Why choose snakes or venom? Here's the reason. Because just in the same way that their sin is destroying their soul, now the venom pourcing through their body will destroy their body. It's meant to be an object lesson for the people of Israel. Your sin is destroying you. But then what does Moses put on the stake? A serpent. Why that animal? So many other options. Why a serpent? Because you know, from Genesis 3, the first person to say, how about we disobey God, was embodied in a serpent's form. And so a serpent has always represented sin. Now think about this with me, okay? So what gets nailed to the stake? Sin. So what's the solution? 
for the venom coursing through their body that will kill them. What's the solution for the sin coursing through their soul that will kill them? Their enemy, sin, must be crucified. And their only hope to be rescued from it is nothing they can do but simply looking at the crucifixion of their sin. Do you see what Jesus is saying then in verse 14? Just like the Son of Man has to be lifted up, that was foreshadowed when the snake was nailed to the stake so that you would know how you can receive rebirth. See, at this point in the sermon, if someone was to ask, hey, how can I be born again? How can I receive rebirth? You might answer, well, you can't. The Spirit blows where he wants. There's nothing you can do. And that is correct biblically. God has to cause rebirth. But don't you see Jesus is telling us now how we receive it? You look and you live. See, the two things Jesus is communicating in this verse and in the most famous verse in the Bible that's yet to come, verse 16, is we are saved when we look and believe, when we repent and have faith. See, verse 14 says, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And the only way to be saved is to look, to look away from any other source of hope. Nobody else can come by and draw the venom out of your body. No doctor is going to fix it in time. You can't amputate something and save yourself. You need to humbly look to the crucifixion of your enemy, sin and death embodied by the Son of God bearing our sin on his cross. But now verse 15, not only do we need to look, that is repent, but now verse 15 and 16, we need to believe. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, on the cross, bearing your sin, may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To believe means to trust. It doesn't mean you can answer every question. It doesn't mean you comprehend all of life's mysteries. We just read that about the Spirit being somewhat mysterious. But it means you know that that's where life is. So you look. You look because you see your son, you see your sin, excuse me, placed on God's son who came so that God's Spirit could give you life. You look because you realize that the Father loved you even as a sinner. Have you ever heard somebody explain the gospel this way? Like, like God the Father's mad at you, but then Jesus comes in the middle and says, hey, no, no, you should love them. You know, that's the opposite of what the Bible teaches, right? You saw in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Jesus didn't have to convince the Father to love us. The Father sent the Son because he loves us. That's why we look. And we look when we finally realize there is nowhere else to go for life. Now, my favorite description of this in church history is the life of Charles Spurgeon. In the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, this testimony is a remarkable one. He was on his way to a church he wanted to go to, and there was a huge snowstorm, and so he couldn't go as far as he wanted to go. He ended up walking into a small Methodist church, even though he was a Methodist. There were only a few people there that Sunday. It was a big snowstorm. And the preacher got up to speak. Charles Spurgeon later wrote in his memoirs that the speaker was such a poor speaker that all he did was read one verse and try to explain it. But God is so good, he powerfully works through just one verse. The verse was Isaiah 45, verse 22. This was the verse God had Spurgeon here that morning. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, 
and be saved. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. And then the man, who was a layman, because the preacher couldn't make it that day, the man started to explain the one verse that he read. He said, you know, you don't even have to lift a finger to look. You don't have to be worth a thousand pounds to look. You don't have to make a thousand pounds a year to look. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be everything. You just have to look. And then the man said this, don't look to yourselves. There's no hope there. But then the man explained Isaiah 45:22 through Jesus. He said, Jesus said, look to me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me. I'm hanging on a cross. Look to me. I've died. I've been buried. Look to me. I'm risen. I'm ascended. And I'm going to the right hand of the Father. Look to me. Now, there were only about four to five people there that entire morning. And so the man preaching called out Spurgeon and said this, young man, you look miserable and you're going to be miserable. You're going to be miserable in life and death if you don't obey my text. And at that moment, Spurgeon later wrote that he was ready for someone to tell him 50 things he could do in order to be saved. But then suddenly he realized, I just have to look. I'd been looking to myself. But in that moment, Spurgeon later wrote, but then I finally looked and I looked at Jesus until my eyes almost looked themselves away. See, what it means to look is not merely to say, oh Lord, I'm sorry for some bad things that I've done. No, it means to look and say, Lord, I'm sorry even for the good things I've done for bad reasons. I'm sorry that I've tried to earn it on my own. I'm sorry that I've tried to control and manipulate you by thinking if I do this, you'll do that. I'm sorry that I've tried to win approval from other people. I'm sorry, Lord, that I've tried to control my own outcome. I recognize I'm spiritually bankrupt. I cannot look to myself at all, and I look to Jesus alone. See, birth requires an outside source. You can't schedule your own birth. You can't control it. Someone else has to cause it. Birth makes a new being, a new self, Birth includes lifelong development. You're born dependent. You go through growing pains. But fourth, the main answer to, to Nicodemus's question, how is the rebirth possible? Is because birth always costs somebody a lot of pain. Jesus explains this in John 16. In John 16, he explains how the new birth was made possible. He says in verse 20, Truly, I, truly, I say to you, my disciples, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but it will be turned to joy because when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for a human being has been born for joy. I was in the hospital for four of the children that we brought to life there. And I remember somebody in the room was in a lot of pain. <laughs> My hand was being squeezed, but that other person was going through a significant amount of pain to bring someone into the world. And we had an epidural available. <laughs> in the first century, there's no epidurals, there's no anesthetics, there's no hospitals. And you know history well enough to know that many, not a few, but many people actually died giving birth. Jesus compares him giving birth to the joy that we experience 
and the joy that he experiences when his hour has come. He says, just like the woman's hour comes to give birth, so my hour will come. And you know in the Gospel of John, the hour is the cross. But the most staggering thing Jesus says was the end of John 16, 21. That just like when that baby is born and you're so happy that you forget all the anguish, so when Jesus gives new birth, he's so happy that he endured the cross. It's remarkable that Jesus takes such joy in our rebirth that he endured the cross with pleasure. We've had the privilege of bringing four new beings home. And then we've heard crying. (laughs) And then more crying. And then seemingly years of crying. And I got in trouble one weekend when my wife came home and I had left to my omission four foot height crayon marks all the way through the house that we had to clean up. Our home now has things that are broken that I previously thought were impenetrable. Our pantry has been emptied more than I thought possible. And I've used up all my mud and my spackling. (laughs) But I would never change anything because of the joy it is for their new birth. Jesus is making it a strikingly beautiful metaphor. The anguish of his own death is not worth being compared to the joy of seeing new people born of the Spirit. It's a powerful and beautiful image. So the response for us today is in John 1. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. But all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the power to be born children of God. Born not of the blood of human parentage or of the will of human decision, but of God. So this morning, the new birth is necessary. It's a miracle. It has an element of mystery. But its power is because Jesus went to the cross. And all we do is look and live. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.